Jesus, that all those who confess their sins and humble themselves before Him can, can be sure that they receive forgiveness of all of their sins. Let us now turn to God's Word. We'll be looking at two places in the Word of God. First, the first chapter of the book of Kings, 1 Kings 1. First Kings 1, we'll read the whole chapter. This will also be our text that we'll be, we'll be focusing on this morning. First Kings 1, beginning at verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be besought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not." Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, it's also the son of David, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeriah, and with Abiathar, the priest, And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David, and say to him, Did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber, Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he is not invited. 
And now, my lord the king, the eyes of, is, of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will, be, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day, and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live king Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground, and paid homage to the king, and said, May my lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest. Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel, then blow the trumpet, and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and had Solomon ride on, the, on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan the son of Abiathar the priest came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelathites. 
And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. So far from the book of Kings, let's also turn to the New Testament. To the book of Philippians. Philippians 2, and we'll read there the verses 1 through 11. There the apostle writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So far from the word of God. As mentioned, the text that we'll be focusing on this morning is the entire chapter, 1 Kings 1. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, so this morning we begin a series in the book of Kings, which hopefully we'll be busy with for a few months. Now, just just hearing that might already make some of us a little anxious. When we read Kings, and this this chapter would be a perfect example of this, it can sometimes feel like old Israelite history that doesn't have anything obviously to do with 21st century Canada. 
Now, I have no doubt that many here do find the book of Kings very enriching and, and helpful. But still, many of us, when we read through this book, the connections between then and now don't seem so obvious. And then we would rather spend more time reading, say, the Gospels or the letters of Paul, things that are more obviously connected to our lives here in Alora. That's very understandable. At the same time, Paul tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for instruction, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness. And it's good to remember when Paul wrote that, all he had for Scripture was the Old Testament. So he was writing specifically of the Old Testament. So that should tell us then there's more to these ancient history books than simply dry Israelite history. And I want to assure you, brothers and sisters, that that is the case. And I hope that as we work through the book of Kings, we'll all be able to see that as well. These books have much to do with 21st century Canada. See, First and Second Kings was never meant to be a simple record of history. It was written by prophets, and it was written as a teaching tool to show the people of God what God is like. They already had historical records in their day. In fact, the book of Kings often repeatedly references those books. If you want to know more about this king or that king, then look at the archives of the kings or the chronicles or so, so on and so forth. They already had those books, and that was precisely not the purpose of these books. The purpose of these books are to retell the history of God's people from God's perspective to teach us about the kind of God that he is and the kind of people that he would have us be. So the book of Kings is in fact rich with biblical instruction that the church today has much to learn from. And hopefully we'll see that as we work through the book of Kings. Let's begin by understanding the chapter before us in 1 Kings 1. Verses 1 through 4 introduce us to the situation, the status quo in the kingdom of Israel. If you've read First and Second Samuel, it's quite a sad picture to see King David in the state that we find him here now. That once strong body that killed Goliath, that led armies, that had an elite group of warriors, now it's so old and so weak that he can't even keep himself warm. The mind that wrote so many of the psalms that still are so meaningful to us today is so weak, so fragile, that he's preoccupied with the situation in his bedroom. Apparently, David's servants decided that a possible remedy would be to find some beautiful young woman to lie beside David. Now, there's no point in pretending that this isn't what it is. Their plan was clearly to see if they could arouse David by getting his aging body to warm up that way. You have to wonder what Abishag thought about this whole arrangement, but it doesn't say. Here, the prophets are simply recording this to show us that David's days were over. They tell us that even with, all, even with the most beautiful woman in Israel, David still knew her not. It's obvious. His time is over. David has lost it. The end of his life is very near. And it's clear that David has lost it, not only in that sense but also in his ability to govern his kingdom of Israel. 
As these things are going on in David's bedroom, the kingdom around him is in serious turmoil, and David seems to be completely oblivious to what's going on. Now, all this is is just introductory background information for what this chapter is really about, which is Adonijah's failed attempt to take the kingdom for himself and how Solomon eventually came to the throne. But by, by starting here with this picture of the old, impotent King David, the text is setting the tone for the book and teaching us an important lesson about God's kingdom. The book of Kings is a book that looks ahead. It's not a book that looks back to the glory days of yesterday. The book of Kings begins with the end of David's life, because it's not interested in the past as much as in the future. It's saying the past is over. David's days are gone. We should be looking forward. What's coming next in God's kingdom? What's the future of God's kingdom? Well, David's oldest son, Adonijah, is pretty sure he has the answer to that question. Verse 5, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now that that first line should already give us some clue as to where this story is going. Adonijah exalted himself. It tells you a lot already about this man's character. And even though God's voice is is largely silent in this chapter, God never speaks explicitly, it's key phrases like this that give away God's perspective on what's going on. What did the Lord teach us after all? He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Adonijah chose the route of exalting himself. Well, if you know First and Second Samuel well, if you've read them recently, this verse, verse, verse 5, should also remind us of Adonijah's older brother, Absalom. Absalom did exactly the same thing, and this verse is actually copied word for word from Second Samuel 15, when Absalom decided to overthrow David and, and make himself king. The, the verse in Second Samuel goes like this. After, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. It's exactly the same thing that Adonijah is doing. So it's obvious the author wants us to think about what happened with Absalom, to look at Adonijah and see a second version of Absalom. Those who don't learn from history are bound to repeat it, as the saying goes. And verse 6 reinforces that idea. Just like Absalom, Adonijah was a handsome and a powerful man. He was the oldest surviving son of David. And notice what else verse 6 tells us. It says in verse 6, His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus or so? Adonijah never knew what it was like for dad to confront him when he was wrong. Now, there's some important lessons about parenting just built into phrases like that. It says that David never displeased his son, or he never tried, anyway, to displease his son. He never wanted conflict with his son. And what did he get as a result? First Absalom, and now Adonijah also rebelling against him. See, fathers need to know confrontation is going to come either way. 
There's no getting around it. It's either going to happen in the home when the kids are still young and can still be corrected and receive that correction in love, or otherwise it's going to come afterwards when the kids are out of the home and then they're beyond correction. Confrontation is always going to come. Fathers that love their children will confront them while they are still teachable. A child that grows up without dad's correction is a child that ultimately hardens in sin. No doubt Solomon wrote from experience when he wrote Proverbs 13, verse 24, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. That's something that Solomon himself never saw from his dad, and he saw the effects of it in his brother's. Parents and fathers, especially as the head of the family, must not be afraid to confront or displease their children. They're not called to be their kid's best friend. They're called to be fathers. A father who is unwilling to displease his children when it's necessary is not only in in disobedience to God, but as you see in this chapter, is also creating a problem for the church, a problem for the community. The confrontation and the displeasure, it's going to come either way. A child that is corrected in love will respect his father for it. A child that sees that his father doesn't love him enough to correct him will in the end hate his father. And this is the story that you see in both Absalom and Adonijah. And it's good to recognize that also about David. David is not portrayed as an ideal father. He may have been a wonderful songwriter. He may have been a mighty warrior. He may have been a man after God's own heart, but he was not a very good father. Even though he had the courage to face Goliath, he never had the courage or the willpower to confront his own kids at home. See, it it teaches us a lesson about manliness. Manliness isn't only measured by how well we perform on the job site or on the battlefield. It's also what we do at home. David was a weakling at home in front of his kids. And in fact, if you know the story of First and Second Samuel well, this, is, this has been a constant problem in David's life. His oldest son, Amnon, raped Absalom, his, his, his half-sister, Absalom's full sister. And the, the whole story with Absalom started because David was unwilling to confront Amnon. So this has been a repeated history. David's sons are a litany of problems, and they all trace their way back to a negligent father. And now we see David's abdication of his responsibility had consequences, not just for his family, but for everyone around him. Israel desperately needed David to do something about his kids. It reminds you of the high priest Eli and his sons who were robbing the people who came to the tabernacle and sleeping with the women who came there. Eli also failed to do anything about his sons, and it had consequences for Israel. Sins of omission, when we we fail to do what we're called to do, they can easily be just as damaging and destructive as those sins of commission, the things that we do wrong that we ought not to have done. History is not only going to remember the things that we did that we shouldn't have done, but also the things that we ought to have done and failed when it was our responsibility. So much then for, for Adonijah. He exalted himself saying, I will be king. 
He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, fifty men to run before him. And he conferred with Joab the son of Zariah and with Abiathar the priest. Again, it's helpful to know the background from First and Second Samuel. These are the men that are going to stand with Adonijah. And these were important men. These were men who had been with David all along. They had been through his entire reign as king and even, in fact, before he was king. They were at his side. Joab was the commander of the army, a very, very powerful, important figure. He had a long history with David, but that said, he wasn't exactly a clean character, and you you recognize this as you read through Samuel. He had killed innocent men in cold blood for political reasons more than once during his career. And as you read through Samuel, it's also clear the only reason David himself didn't break ties with Joab and even execute Joab was because he was afraid of Joab. He recognized Joab was too powerful for him to deal with. In fact, in the next chapter, in First Kings 2, that's exactly what David tells Solomon. I never had the power to deal with Joab. Now you have to deal with him. Abiathar was the high priest. That's the top religious position in Israel, the pope, so to say. And like Joab, he had been with David right from the beginning. So Adonijah was not at all picking upstarts or rebels in the kingdom as his supporters. He was choosing powerful men, the commander of the army and the high priest, and people that had been at David's side for a long time. We don't know why exactly Abiathar sided with Adonijah. He really was a good man in First and Second Samuel. He had stood by David's side even when Absalom rebelled against him. And Solomon even admits to him in the next chapter, You shared in all my father's afflictions. The only reason that we can find in this book for why Adonijah or why Abiathar decided to follow Adonijah was because this was part of God's plan to deal with the line of Eli. Abiathar was the last descendant of Eli to serve as priest. So in God's sovereignty for reasons that we don't know, Abiathar was attracted to Adonijah when he should have known better. And it ultimately led him to being expelled from the priesthood, which was exactly in God's plan to deal with the line of Eli. Now, we might excuse these men for siding with Adonijah. It's not like it was the same thing as Absalom. David hadn't appointed a successor. So it's not exactly the same kind of situation. With Absalom, it was a blatant rebellion against the Lord's anointed. He was overthrowing David. Adonijah wasn't doing that. He was setting himself up to be king after David, and after all, David hadn't done anything. He hadn't appointed a successor. But it's obvious that Adonijah wasn't exactly playing by the book either. He never once asked permission from his father, who was, after all, still king. And very conspicuously, you notice the list of people that weren't invited to his feast. Zadok the priest, also a righteous man. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. Nathan the prophet. All of these very faithful men. And Solomon, his brother. He clearly knew that Solomon was the preferred choice for a successor. There are some commentators that argue that nobody knew that David had sworn this oath to Bathsheba that Solomon would reign after him. And it's true, that isn't recorded anywhere in Scripture. 
But it's obvious that Solomon was the preferred successor and that people knew about this oath that David had sworn. Nathan clearly knew about it. And apparently Adonijah also knew that Solomon was the chosen son. Otherwise, why didn't he invite him also? So even though this isn't exactly the same kind of treason that Absalom committed, he clearly wasn't playing, against, playing by the book. He was acting against King David's wishes and without the blessing of the godly faithful men in the kingdom. And by doing this, he was putting the entire kingdom at risk of civil war. And brothers and sisters, here you can see the destructive character of self-exaltation. Adonijah's goal was to exalt himself, to to serve his own ambition. And he accomplished this by gathering around himself as many powerful people as he could find and deliberately excluding others, dividing God's people into teams for the sake of exalting himself. Now, I don't want to draw more application from this than is appropriate, But consider how easily this kind of thing can happen, not only in the kingdom, but also in the church. We we start to form coalitions when we're in the business of exalting ourselves. We gather powerful people to our side. One side has the minister. One side has the chairman of consistory. Or even in a family, one side has dad. One side has mom. And we divide ourselves for the sake of self-exaltation. That's what's behind it, pride and ambition, selfishness. Behind it all, there's a real discontent with where God has placed us in his church or in his kingdom. That was the case with Adonijah. He saw the writing on the wall. He knew that Solomon was the chosen successor. He saw the blessing of godly, faithful men behind Solomon. But instead of embracing his role as God had called him, he chose to exalt himself and to form a coalition of people around him. And by doing that, he jeopardized the peace of the kingdom of God. He put the kingdom at risk of civil war. How easily we can do this kind of thing. Think of what the Apostle James says in James 3, verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil practice. So that's Adonijah. Now let's leave him there for a moment and turn to the palace where we find David. While men are out there plotting and scheming, God still remains sovereign. And sometimes he works in very quiet, subtle ways. And in verses 11 through 40, we see how God uses the work of faithful men like Nathan to oppose Adonijah's plan. Nathan, of course, was one of the people that wasn't invited to Adonijah's feast, but he obviously heard about what was going on, and immediately he goes to Bathsheba to tell her about it. She either herself must have not known about it, or maybe she didn't feel there was anything she could do about it. But Nathan was clearly very concerned about what was happening. And so he came up with this elaborate plan to persuade David to act. He was clearly worried that David might, might have just been unconcerned or unwilling to act. So he and Bathsheba conspired to appear before David, pretending to be two independent witnesses to what was going on, to make it seem urgent and to play on David's emotions. Bathsheba goes to David first, and she has basically three things to say to David. First, in verse 17, she reminds him of the promise that he made to her, that 
excuse me, that Solomon would be king. She accuses him of essentially breaking his promise to her because now she says Adonijah is already as good as being king. In verse 18, she says that Adonijah has become king, which is definitely a stretch of the truth. But it would be very true soon if David didn't act. Then in verse 20, Bathsheba reminds David of his responsibility. It was his job to name a successor. And she says to him, all the eyes of Israel are on you to do this. You need to act. It's a wake-up call. She's saying, look at you, David. You're sitting here in your bedroom with Abishag. And meanwhile, the kingdom around you is falling apart. And you don't even seem to know it. And everyone is waiting for you to do your job. It's one of the most important tasks of a good, faithful wife to assist her husband, which includes calling on him respectfully to do his responsibility before God. Bathsheba knows she can't do David's job for him. He only can do this. But as his wife, she has a special access and privilege of coming before him. And she can urge him to be the man that he's supposed to be. To fulfill his responsibility before God. So that's the second part of her argument. And then finally in verse 21, Bathsheba tells David, If you don't act then think about what's going to happen when Adonijah becomes king. You know that I and your son Solomon are going to be counted as enemies. She points David to the inevitable consequences of his inaction, and then she appeals to his love for her and Solomon. And then before Bathsheba's even finished speaking, David bursts into the king's chamber or or, or Nathan, rather, bursts into the king's chamber. He arrives right on cue, pretending to know nothing at all about what's going on with Bathsheba. The idea, then, is to get David to think it's all happening right at once. The kingdom is falling apart. You need to get up and act immediately. So he, he stops procrastinating. He stops delaying his responsibility to name his successor. Now, Nathan, of course, he knew that David didn't know anything about what was going on what Adonijah was doing. But he acts like David knew about the whole thing, like David had even set it all up behind his back. And he pretends to be betrayed as David's friend. He says in verse 24, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne? And then he explains all that's been happening. And in verse 27, he says, Now, Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So now, not only does David feel like he's betrayed Bathsheba and put her life at risk, but he's also betrayed his loyal friend Nathan, God's prophet. Well, Nathan's plan was clearly effective. It seems like suddenly David wakes up from his apathy. And in verses 28 and following, we get this this final glimpse of the old King David, the King David that we knew from 1 and 2 Samuel. He says in verse 29, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon shall reign after me. Even so, I will do this day. He then suddenly is all in control of the situation. He calls on his servants, Zadok the priest, Nathan, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the the Carathites and Pelathites, and, and he has them arrange for Solomon to 
to, for them to place Solomon on his royal mule, anoint him as king, and blow the trumpet in all Israel so that everyone may know that Solomon is the new king. This is exactly what David needed to do. It should have happened a long time ago. The royal mule was proof of the king's approval. There would be no questions that this was David's choice. And the trumpet would let all Israel know and would do exactly what it should do, catch Adonijah and his friends off guard. So that's exactly what they do. They went out, they got David's mule, they had Solomon ride on it, and it says in verse 40, All the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Well, we'll we'll come back to that picture in just a moment. There's something important to learn from that picture. But let's turn first to Adonijah. That's where the text immediately takes us. The moment that Adonijah and his allies heard the sound of the trumpet, their party was over. Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, came in. He explained what was going on. And just as quickly, this entire coalition of powerful people dissolved into, their, into thin air. Every one of them went back to their homes as secretly, as quietly as possible. Adonijah suddenly recognized he had crossed the line with his personal ambition. He had the chance to embrace God's role for him, to serve in the kingdom under Solomon and probably very effectively as the oldest son, but now he would be disgraced. He ends up having to beg Solomon for his life, begging his younger brother to save him. He who lives by the mob will die by the mob. He who lives for the esteem and honor of others will ultimately find himself disgraced. So what are the lessons here for us then, several thousand years later? As I mentioned earlier, we we hardly hear God's voice in this whole story. We just see people plotting and scheming. But the prophets recorded these events to teach later generations. So what are the lessons for us? Is this chapter still relevant for us today? Well, I've alluded to some of the lessons already, but let's recap. Let's consider what the authors want to impress upon us, the readers. First, remember, this is a book that looks forward. It begins with an old, senile David, a man that we really don't even recognize anymore. There's no sense in looking back for the good old days. David was just a man. Even Solomon was just a man. This is a book that looks forward. It recognizes the future of God's kingdom is what we should be waiting for and fighting for. So what kind of kingdom then are we supposed to be looking for? Well, in this chapter, one of the things we see clearly right from the beginning of the book of Kings is that the kingdom of God is going to be established in humility, not in self-exaltation. Those who exalt themselves will not be the ones that God chooses to build his kingdom. The Messiah also who's coming is not going to be a man like Adonijah, a man who exalts himself. No, he'll be a lot more like Solomon, a man who is humble. It's interesting, I don't know if you noticed it too, in this whole chapter, except for the very end, the very last verses, you don't hear anything at all from Solomon. 
And that's striking because this whole chapter is about Solomon. You hear plenty from his rival, Adonijah. And I don't think we should get the impression that Solomon was just, you know, sitting around waiting for God to glorify him. No, he was clearly busy enough and gifted enough that he was surrounded by people like Benaiah and Nathan and and others. They knew that he was the right man for the job. But Solomon's silence is significant. What it shows us is that Solomon, unlike Adonijah, Solomon wasn't living for his own selfish ambition. He didn't need to hear his own voice heard. He wasn't seeking to exalt himself like Adonijah was. He was simply busy in the realm in which God had called him. For him, nearness with God and serving God was a greater reward in itself than the honor and wealth that comes with self-exaltation. See, honor, wealth, and power, those are great rewards, and God sometimes does give them to his servants. But Solomon recognized they're not the greatest reward. He was pursuing something greater, the nearness and the favor of God, simply being a faithful servant in God's servant. He was doing what the, the, what, what the Apostle Paul called the Pastor Timothy to do, to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. For him, that meant simply being faithful in the calling that he had from God. You might think of what Solomon himself would later write in Proverbs 15. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. And we can see God ultimately blessed that humility and that faithful, that faithful work in his calling. God ultimately did exalt Solomon for that. We're reminded of the, the words of the Lord Jesus again. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the way that things work in God's kingdom. This is the kind of kingdom that God is interested in building. One where he is glorified, not where people glorify themselves. He, after all, is the one who is worthy of being exalted. We are only faithful servants who have done our duty at best. If he chooses to exalt us for that, then he may do so. But we have no business exalting ourselves. You might think of the admonition of the Apostle James, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. How much strife boils down to proud people exalting themselves. This, the authors who wrote Kings, this is not the the kingdom of God. That's their message for us in this chapter. Let me say it as, as boldly as I can. The Lord Jesus was very clear The humble shall inherit the earth. There is not one proud individual in heaven. There are no self-righteous people in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is reserved for wretched sinners who recognize themselves as such, who humble themselves before God, and who plead with God for forgiveness that they know they don't deserve. And they they receive only on the basis of the blood of Christ, who died the death that they should have died for their sins. 
So in this chapter, we see a godly man, Solomon, working faithfully in his calling, who was exalted by God, while the unfaithful, ungodly, ambitious, self-exalting Adonijah was humbled. We know that it isn't going to work out this way every time in the book of Kings, not on this side of eternity at least. But what we see in this chapter is what, the, what our Lord taught us. It's God who humbles the proud, and it's God who exalts the lowly. And in this, the prophets who wrote Kings then were showing us, Solomon is a picture of the kind of Messiah that we should be waiting for, the kind of Messiah who would come and build God's kingdom. The prophets who wrote Kings are warning the reader, don't look for the kind of Messiah who looks like Adonijah. It doesn't fit the pattern. Look instead for a Messiah like Solomon, a Messiah who humbles himself. Jesus Christ is the epitome, the perfect example of this kind of humility. That's what we read in Philippians 2. He didn't count even equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. And notice what Paul tells us. Even though he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no question that the Gospels pick up on that moment when Solomon rode into Jerusalem. I said we'd come back to that. It was a very significant moment. And it's a picture that the rest of the Old Testaments, many of the prophets, continue to point back to. Someday, they taught us, that moment was going to happen again. But this time it would be even more glorious with the Messiah who would establish David's throne forever. Not in the weakness that we see in King David and even eventually in King Solomon. Now it's obvious, it's obvious that the Lord Jesus picked up on this picture himself two and a half thousand years later when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people would have recognized that moment. That's why they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what else did the people see when they saw Jesus riding in Jerusalem? Well, I don't know about the average Jew standing there, but the disciples saw the man who just a few hours earlier had told them the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The disciples found this kind of humility impossible to comprehend in their Messiah. It wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were looking for, surprisingly, because it's the kind of Messiah that Kings teaches us to look for. But they didn't see it because they themselves weren't made of that spirit. They were seeking to glorify themselves, fighting over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so they weren't looking for the kind of Messiah either, who would humble himself and be a servant. The Son of Man, Jesus says, came to give his life as a ransom for many. If he hadn't done so, if he hadn't humbled himself in that way, then none of us would ever have been saved. 
See, one of the clearest points in Scripture is God hates pride. Solomon himself emphasizes this in Proverbs 6, verse 16. He says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, and the first one to top the list is haughty eyes. It's abominable to God because we are the last people in the world who ought to be proud. We are sinners who deserve his judgment. But Christ, the one person who had the right to exalt himself, he instead humbled himself to save proud, self-exalting sinners. So then, what about us? Well then, us who trust in that Messiah, let us also be then the kind of servants who befit such a Messiah. As the servants of that Messiah, let's not follow the example of Adonijah and his friends, exalting ourselves, gathering powerful people around ourselves, but instead let us humble ourselves before God, waiting for him in the proper time to lift us up as he sees fit. And as we do that, we can reflect also on this story and take comfort in the fact that God uses the labor of humble servants. Think of Nathan and Bathsheba. Their faithful work done in the positions in which God had placed them was what God used to preserve his kingdom from civil war, to stop Adonijah and his people from getting their way. See, choosing to serve God in humility instead of exalting yourself doesn't mean that you won't matter in God's kingdom. It just means letting God decide in his time and in his way exactly how you will matter. And so then, as people following the Messiah who humbled himself, let us also humble ourselves before God as wretched sinners who deserve nothing but shame and dishonor for our sins. And let us follow our King who humbled himself in obedience to God for our sake. Let us remember, even if we have nothing to boast about but the cross, that is a great boast to have. And if all we have is the nearness of God as our reward in this life and in the life to come and his approval of our work afterwards, instead of the honor and praise of others, that is a great reward. Amen.